0: Hey everybody, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to the Word of Life Church Sermon Podcast. I'm glad you're interested in what we have to say as we try to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would ever be so inclined to help us financially, you can do that at wolc.com. Welcome everyone to our Ash Wednesday service and the beginning of Lent, those of you that are Here in the house with me and those of you that are joining us online, John chapter 11 verse 7, then after this Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas the twin captures something of the intent of the holy season of Lent. Lent, as you probably know, is a 46-day spiritual journey where we travel with Jesus to Judea, to Jerusalem, and to the cross. During Lent, we say with Thomas... Let us also go that we may die with him. So Lent is a time to travel with Jesus and to die with Jesus. To die to whatever it is we need to die to. Our pride, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our greed, our arrogance, our lust. Whatever it is we need to die to, Lent is a season to travel with Jesus And as Thomas says, to die with him. Lent is a time for us to emphasize the road of discipleship. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. The road of discipleship. Peter was on the road with Jesus and the other disciples when they were up near Caesarea Philippi when Peter made the great confession that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was blessed by Jesus, and Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the priests and the elders, be condemned and crucified, and on the third day, raised again. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him and said, Lord, this must never happen to you. To which Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are setting your mind on things of men, not the things of God. And then Jesus said to the whole congregation of his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Hmm. If anybody wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. Well, this this is a shocking thing to say. We are now, of course, 2,000 years later, accustomed to making some kind of casual connection between cross and religion and things like that, cross and spirituality. But to the original hearers of Jesus' call to discipleship, this would be shocking almost beyond comprehension. Take up your cross. Take up your prayer shawl, maybe. But take up your cross? There was no connection in the minds of those first hearers between a cross and anything other than death. The cross was not a religious emblem. The cross was not some sort of call to pious spirituality. It would only be heard as a call to death. That is a call to martyrdom because in the minds of those original hearers, the only purpose of a Roman cross was to put someone to death. Now Jesus, during his ministry, is announcing the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. He's saying God is about to reign and rule among us through what I'm doing. And many heard this as good news. This is what they were in fact longing for. That the kingdom, not of Caesar, not of Herod, but of God would come. That God would reign and rule. This is what they were longing for. But each and every one made a fundamental false assumption. All of them. John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, probably even his own mother, they all assumed that the kingdom of God would come in the way of Joshua and his conquest, King David and his wars, Judah Maccabee and the revolt of 160 years earlier that had thrown off the yoke of the Seleucid Empire. They all assumed that at some point they would take up the sword and bring in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God does not come by the sword. It comes by the cross. Jesus was willing to die for that which he was unwilling to kill. And laying down your life for your friends in the Jesus way does not mean trying to kill your enemies. So the kingdom of God is a direct challenge and a divine alternative to pagan empire. The kingdom of God will not advance by the spilling of blood of enemies, but by ah, the shed blood of Jesus and by the shed blood of the martyrs who follow him. As the second century church father famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The spectacle that embodies the kingdom of God is not the military parades of empires then and now, but the condemned Christ carrying his cross to Golgotha. As we follow Jesus, we don't shoulder our rivals; we take up our cross. In 1505, Hieronymus Bosch completed his painting, Christ Carrying the Cross. It's a remarkable painting. We see Jesus in a crown of thorns, under the lash of a whip, struggling under the weight of the cross as a single tear rolls down his cheek. But the most striking thing about this painting is how Jesus looks directly at the viewer and you could almost hear him say follow me. The cross we must understand is not something that Jesus only does for us. Rather the cross is also a pattern we are to follow. We each have our own cross. We don't merely stand on the sidelines and say, Way to go, Jesus. Carry that cross. Save my soul. I mean, Jesus does carry a cross that does save our soul. But as he carries his cross, he looks at us as that single tear rolls down his cheek and he says, Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, the cross of discipleship is the call to self-denial for the sake of imitating Christ. This is something we emphasize during Lent. And the ultimate imitation of Christ is martyrdom. You think about those first followers of Jesus. How many of them died a martyr's death? Peter. Andrew. James the brother of John, James, the brother of Jesus. Thomas. Hmm. Yeah, Thomas said, let us go to Judea that we might die with him. Thomas didn't die in Judea. Thomas died in India. And of course, the Apostle Paul. These are the apostolic martyrs of the origin of Christian faith. Now, for most, of course... The cross of self denial for the sake of Christ will not lead to actual martyrdom. We'll die to something. We'll die to this or that. But we won't actually die a martyr's death. But for every Christian, the possibility is martyrdom. The possibility of martyrdom is always on the table. That's why the official initiation into the Christian faith is through a burial. That's what baptism is. This is is how strange our faith is. It begins with a burial. The first thing we do as we begin to follow Jesus, we're buried. We're already saying, I am willing to lay down my life for my Lord because you know what? I've already been buried with him. And this is to be understood from the very beginning. Now, for the early church, martyrdom was an existential reality and an ever-present possibility. And that continues, by the way, to be the case for millions of Christians around the world living in countries and cultures hostile to Christianity. But I have something that disturbs me. I was doing a radio interview today and talking about how this bothers me. I fear that many American Christians view martyrdom not only as unthinkable but somehow even disgraceful. Instead of being viewed as the greatest honor as the early Christians did martyrdom is viewed as weak and ignoble and this indicates a deep poverty within certain forms of Christianity in the western world. Now someday, I keep saying this, I'll get to it eventually, I hope. Someday I hope to do maybe a series of sermons on the early Christian martyrs, because I think we should know of them and we're woefully ignorant of their stories. But tonight I want to talk about two 20th century Christian martyrs. First, a very famous martyr, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1907. He was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian. In 1937, he wrote what would become his most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. But he didn't write this in a vacuum. He wrote it in a very particular context. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the the cost of discipleship in the midst of the rise of Nazi ideology in Germany. He wrote it in the shadow of the swastika. And he wrote it in response to the phenomenon of millions and millions of Germans who belonged to the German Christian movement who had allied their faith with Nazism. They saw them as completely compatible, not only compatible, but in fact God's will. About 80% of German evangelicals believed that God had raised up Hitler to restore German greatness. And it's in that context that Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes the cost of disciples. Because he looked around and he saw there were millions of Christians who had no conflict of mind or heart about attending a Nazi rally on Saturday night and then attending, attending church on Sunday morning. They thought they were completely compatible. Well, along with Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer helped form what was called the Confessing Church. And the Confessing Church was a resistance to the German Christian movement, where pastors were actually making oaths of loyalty to Adolf Hitler. And this was a resistance movement to that, sadly, only about 10%, maybe 20% of pastors in Germany in the 1930s joined the confessing church movement. Now, the most famous line in Diedrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this was Diedrich Bonhoeffer's salvo against what he called cheap grace. He describes cheap grace as the grace that is without cost. See, we, we stand on the sidelines, Jesus carries his cross, we say, Thank you, Jesus. I'll see you in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. And he says, that's not grace at all. That's cheap grace. He said, the costly grace calls us then to take up our cross, follow in behind Jesus, and follow him wherever he leads. Later in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer speaks directly about martyrdom. He writes, Jesus says that every Christian has his own cross waiting for him. A cross destined and appointed by God. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection. But each has a different share. Some God deems worthy of the highest form of suffering. And gives them the grace of martyrdom. Eight years after Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the grace of martyrdom. He found that grace at the end of a Nazi noose. He was 39 years old. Now, Diedrich Bonhoeffer came from one of the most prestigious families in Germany. His father was a famous psychiatrist in Berlin. Diedrich was famous as a theologian. And his imprisonment and then subsequent execution were all well known. But there were others whose courageous faith and martyrs' death was a hidden life. Let me tell you the story of Franz Jägerstatter. He was an Austrian farmer. He wasn't a well-known theologian. He was an Austrian farmer from the tiny village of St. Radegund. He was a wild youth. Drinking, fighting, getting in scrapes with the police kind of a motorcycle-riding hooligan known to be something of a womanizer. This was uh, Franz Jägerstatter in his teens and 20s. But at the age of 29, he experienced a profound conversion. You know, these things can happen. It doesn't always happen like that, but it can happen. Where someone is, is a million miles away as far as you can tell from anything that has to do with following God and then there's a thunderclap and they're suddenly changed. This kind of thing can happen and it happened to Franz Jager's daughter in 1936 at the age of 29 and one of, the, one of the characteristics of his conversion besides the fact that he quit fighting with the police and other stuff is that he developed an almost obsessive love for the Bible. I do know something about that, because that's what happened to me when I was 15. When Fry found Jesus, or when Jesus found Fry, yeah, that's what they called me back then was Fry. I just loved the Bible. I would take it with me everywhere I go in, in a way that looking back was somewhat ridiculous. But it wasn't, I wasn't trying to make a show of it. I just wanted to have the book near because I wanted to read it all the time. So I understand that phenomenon. And this is what happened to Franz Jägerstatter. Now this is happening in 1936. Again, during the rise of Nazism. In his tiny village, Adolf Hitler was enormously popular. But he's reading the Bible. And he sees that there's a contradiction. You say, well, didn't everybody see there was a contradiction? No, they did not. One night... Franz had a dream, and he dreamed that Hitler was an antichrist, antichrist, and Nazism was this black train that was carrying all who boarded it to hell. And he became bold and outspoken and began to talk about this in the little village of Saint Radegund. He was roundly criticized by his fellow villagers. Eventually, he was conscripted into the German army. On March 1st, 1943, he, appoint, he 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 showed up for duty. The first thing they do is is for all these conscripts, the first thing they have to do is that when they report for duty, is they have to make an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And he refused to do so the only man in his village that refused to do so. Of course, he was immediately arrested. And he was held in prison for six months, during which time he was given repeated opportunities to recant. All you have to do, he, they said, just sign this paper. just a piece of paper. It's an oath of allegiance to Hitler, yes, but you can believe what you want in your heart. Just sign it, and we can let you go. If not, the penalty is death. But he remained steadfast. Now, even though he had become a devoted member of his local church there, the church was not always a help to his conviction. His local priest told him, You know, your sacrifice will amount to nothing. Think of your family. You have four daughters, you have a wife. If you're executed, what will become of them? Think of them. His bishop said to him, you have a duty to the fatherland. But Franz Egerstatter would not be deterred. He would remain faithful to his Lord. And on August 9th, 1943, he was executed by a guillotine. He was 36 years old. After World War II... Jägerstatter's martyrdom was almost entirely unknown outside the little Austrian village of St. Radegund. And even there, his refusal to fight for the Nazis was not generally celebrated. Most people said, yeah, you know, he should have fought for his, for his country, for his family. And he wasn't generally celebrated there at all. In 1964, Gordon Zahn published... In Solitary Witness, a biography of Franz Jägerstatter. The world had not heard this story. It had just sort of been tucked away in that little tiny Austrian village. But someone took it upon themselves to write his story. Four years later, in 1968, Thomas Merton, who was by then quite famous, wrote about Franz Jägerstatter and his martyrdom. And at last the world began to hear his story. In 1997, the German government symbolically nullified his death sentence. In 2007, he was beatified by Pope Benedict, placing him on the path to Catholic sainthood. And there's, there's an icon of Franz Stutter that I like. There he is, you know, with his Bible because he was so aso- associated with that. And I like the fact that that little Nazi demon there is totally freaked out. Amen and amen, because he loved not his life even to death. He overcame the devil, the accuser of the brethren, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. When he was uh, beatified in Rome by the Pope, his wife, still alive, age 94, was there, as were his four daughters. You know, that priest said, think about them, what about them? They were all right. And they were able to be there when their father was beatified. I became aware of Franz Jagerstatter through the film A Hidden Life. This is the movie that came out in 2019, written and directed by the great Terrence Malick. I believe he's the greatest living film director. It is Terrence Malick's most explicitly Christian film. It is an annoying, it's, it's just, in some ways it might be the greatest Christian film ever made. Uh, I had a podcast conversation with Father John Deere who knew the Jaegerstader family. He never knew Franz, but he knew his widow and continued to know his four daughters. And he told me, he said, and he was a consultant for the film, he said it is a very, very accurate portrayal of Franz Egerstatter's life. It's, it's shot there in St. Ronagoon. It's shot on location. He said they got it just right. I have watched this film. You do know that I am something of an obsessive compulsive. I mean, I make it work for me. <laughs> I've watched it over 20 times. I watched it again last night. You say, you. It's, it's, it's three hours long, by the way. It's three hours long. And so you say, you've, you've invested 60 hours of your life in watching this film? Yes, and I regard it as time well spent. The film won two prizes when it was screened at the Cannes Film Festival in 2019. But not all critics liked it. I think for many it was maybe too Christian. But one of the critics I read, said he couldn't understand why Franz Jägerstatter did what he did. I thought, you're a film critic? What, did you sleep through the whole thing? Did you not pay attention? Throughout the movie, nonstop, there is constantly the church, the steeple, and crosses and crucifix always in the background in over 100 scenes. Yes, I sat there and counted them. You watch a movie 20 times, you can do things like that. Church bells are significant throughout the movie. When you hear the church bells, that's usually a it's a signal that something important's about to happen. The first time a church bell is told, it's Franz himself going into their little church there in St. Radigun, and he's tolling the bell, calling the villagers to worship. And the last time it's told, it's when his friend, the artist Olaf, tolls it at the news of his execution. The film ends with the last line of George Eliot's novel, Middlemarch, and it's where the film gets its name. It ends with these words, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. She means, she means unrecognized by history, unknown acts. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. That things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Well, I will say much of the good of the world is owed to the hidden life of those who took seriously the call of Jesus to take up their cross and follow him. And on this Ash Wednesday, I pray that we may be counted among their number. Amen. Now, as it's Ash Wednesday, and it's a time of repentance, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance The words will be on the screen. I'll be doing most of the praying, but I'm praying it on behalf of us all. But there will be, clearly indicated, portions for the congregation to participate and respond. And I I invite you to do that. So let us bow our hearts and come before our Lord in repentance. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth, that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives our self-indulgent appetites and ways and our exploitation of other people, our anger at our own frustrations and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves, our impertinent love of worldly goods and comforts and our dishonesty in daily life and work, our negligence in prayer and worship, and our failure to commend the faith that is in us. Accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty. For all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from us. For our waste and pollution of your creation and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Restore us, good Lord, and let your anger depart from us. accomplish in us the work of your salvation by the cross and passion of your Son, our Lord. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Would you stand with me? And we're preparing now to, yes, come to the table of the Lord, but also come to the imposition of ashes, which is part of the ancient Christian tradition of Ash Wednesday, where, a, where ashes in the form of a cross are applied to your forehead with these words, Remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. We're reminded of our own mortality. But as we are also receiving Holy Communion, just as soon as someone applies the ashen cross with the words, remember you are dust and the dust you shall return, there'll be somebody there with a basket of bread and they'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. Someone with the cup to say, the blood of Christ shed for you. So remember you are but dust, but remember the body and blood of Jesus confers eternal life upon us. Amen. Let me pray, and then we will come to the ashes and to Holy Communion. Almighty God, you have created us out of the dust of the earth. Grant that these ashes may be to us a sign of our mortality and penitence. that that we may remember that it is only by your gracious gift that we are given everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, amen.